0: In this episode of 92Y Talks, bestselling author David Epstein, who has studied the world's most successful athletes, artists, musicians, inventors, forecasters, and scientists, sits down with Malcolm Gladwell to discuss his new book, Range: Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. The conversation was recorded on May 30th, 2019, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. David,
1: welcome to the 92nd Street Y. Is this your this is your first time on stage here, is it? I did the Q one time. It's my first A. Oh, really? Yeah. want oh, to see. <laughs> the uh, the A is more fun than the Q, I think.
0: I think so. Yeah. Um, we
1: I thought we would start by talking about how we know each other.
0: Yeah, I think that's a. I wanted to do that like at the end to make sure we did that. So, can I say how we know each other? Yes, we'll, like what, to we'll, give,
1: we'll each give our version of events because I suspect it might be
0: different, but you go first. Okay, my version is that um, in our relationship, our, our, our first date was, I guess, me criticizing some of your work in my first book. Yes. Um, and, <laughs> and, and I remember when, you know, not expecting that book to do much, I was at like a very small event in Greenwich Village and somebody came by and said, you know, I just saw reading your book at a cafe, Malcolm Gladwell. And I was like, oh, sh- darn. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think it would get on your radar. Yeah. And then our second date was you critiquing me back in The New Yorker. Also being very positive, but also critiquing me back in well, The you New Yorker. Know, I, well, hold
1: on. I wrote, a, I wrote an article for the magazine, which was, I mean, it was the warmest, sweetest embrace yes. of your book. Yes. And then I did a separate piece for the website where I gently pushed back against some of your more outrageous assertions.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then, I, I'm going to pick up the story from here. OK. Then, I'm, was I on so book gentle. tour? So gentle. You were on book tour. Was, I wasn't on book Why was I, in, I was in Washington DC? And I'm going into NPR. And then you come swinging through the door. Me? You did. Did you not remember this? We had a, it was, in the movies, they would call us meeting cute, <laughs> and then for some reason we started running yeah. together.
0: Yeah. Well, no, you, you skipped over our, our third date, Yeah. which was the first time we actually met in person, which was at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference.
1: Oh, that's right.
0: That was the first time we met in person. We were invited to do a debate that was 10,000 hours versus the sports gene. Yeah. And, and in some ways, my, my, Preparation for that debate because you're very clever and I'd never met you and I didn't want to get embarrassed. Yeah. Um, so I, I did a lot of homework and um, That that debate in some ways seeded some of the ideas for um, for this for this book, but but what I really want to say about that debate was you could very much have just like tried to you know, crush me or like use your literary clout or whatever it was, clout, but instead we ended up having a great conversation. Not only that, but when we came off the stage, you um, told me what you thought my good points were and said, when we're back in New York tomorrow, why don't you go running? He said, this was a great idea, you should explore that more. And for me, this was um, in many ways like the people I write about in Chapter 10 of Range, where this could have become a zero-sum thing, which frankly, with some other authors that I came into conflict with, um, it did become a zero-sum thing, but in this case it wasn't. Like, those, like the foxes in chapter 10, you were willing to update your mental models and I, I learned from that and I think in some ways it empowered me to take on a more amorphous and ambitious book in this project um, that, I, that I know is imperfect but that I was willing to do because of that um, and that sort of openness and exchange I think made me better and I think if that happened more you know we can see in society, there, I think there are too many conflicts that are viewed as zero-sum ideas. We were both disincentivized from agreeing about anything in many ways. Um, but it made me better, and I, for me, it's kind of a model of an intellectual la- relationship, so I, I really appreciate well, that.
1: You, I mean, I feel slightly guilty because I have a, 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 a um, I, I developed this whole theory of love bombing, which was when you're, someone criticizes you, the only appropriate response is to love them back, even if you're doing it cynically. Um, because it completely disarms them. It's the last thing they're expecting. But in your case, I started out thinking, oh, I'll just love bomb him. And then I realized, actually, he has convinced me. So it started cynical and ended up totally idealistic in the sense that I was like, oh, he's totally right. Um, I tried to love bomb him and failed because he actually won me over. Um, so, and By
0: the way, not to, not to <laughs> critique one of your theories, but I, I've seen your, your uh, responses to, like, like some of Chris Chabris' criticism, and I wouldn't call that love bombing. That's well, what no, I was worried I, stray, I was gonna get. I, was I, like I
1: occasionally stray. guillotining. We all stray off the straight and narrow, but I do, in the main, I like to love my critics. Um, but wait, we have to get to the point. What was it, so we had this discussion, it wasn't a debate, it was a discussion at the yeah. MIT Sloan's conference, yeah. and you said it sowed the seeds for this book. What was the
0: seed? Um, so in trying to anticipate what I thought you would have to argue in this debate, um, I, I said, well, you'll have to argue in favor of early specialization in sports. And so I went and looked at all the research I could find about the development of athletes. And it showed that this pattern that athletes who go on to become elite have a sampling period where they play a broad range of sports, uh, they, they gain these, these broad general skills, that become a scaffolding for later skills, they learn about their interests, they learn about their abilities, they delay specializing until later than their peers who plateau at lower levels. And and it's not even just a selection effect, because when you match kids in studies where they're matched for a certain ability level of a certain age and tracked, the ones who in a certain age do more variety of different sports improve more by time, too, basically. And so I sort of brought that up, and you know, in some ways that was incompatible with, with some aspects of the 10,000-hour theory. And so when we were walking off the stage, and we, we framed it as the Roger versus Tiger problem, right? Wait, so wait, so okay. pause on that point. Okay.
1: Build out Roger versus Tiger, because that is a beautifully simple way of illustrating this argument.
0: Okay, so Tiger Woods, probably even even for people who don't know his story, you've probably absorbed at least the gist of it, which is seven months old, his father gives him a putter, not trying to train him to be a golfer, but just gives him a putter. He starts carrying it around in his baby walker. At 10 months, he starts imitating a swing. He was physically precocious. Two years old, he's on national television. Two years old, the CDC development benchmarks are stands on tiptoes and kicks a ball, and he went on television and showed his driving off in front of Bob Hope, basically. Um, By three, his father was media training him. Um, At four, he started hustling people, basically. You know, he's famous as a teenager. By 21, he's the greatest golfer in the world. Roger Federer, maybe the most famous development story in the history of anything. Mm -hmm. Um, Roger Federer, meanwhile, played about a dozen different skiing, skateboarding, badminton, tennis, basketball, soccer, all these things. Mother was a tennis coach, refused to coach him because he wouldn't return balls normally. She said it was no fun. Um, When his coaches tried to bump him up a level, he declined because he just wanted to talk about pro wrestling with his friends after practice. Uh, When he finally got good enough to warrant an interview with a local newspaper and the reporter asked him if he ever became a pro, what he would buy with his first paycheck, he said a Mercedes and his mother was appalled and asked if she could hear the interview recording and he had actually said Mercedes in a Swiss German accent. He just wanted more CDs. Um. And um, and so then she was like, okay, we're doing okay. His, his father had no rules, just said, don't cheat, don't care anything else. And he specialized, year, he continued playing badminton, basketball, soccer, specialized years after. At um, what, what age years. is
1: Roger Federer really only playing tennis? Um,
0: mid-teen years, basically, where he's only doing tennis. But he still continues to non-formally play soccer, even yeah. when he's doing that. Yeah. Um, and, and other informal sports continues with them, even after that. Um, and the question basically was, which one of these models is the norm? Like, yeah. which one should we extrapolate now, from? Why this, to me, always is the fascinating question. So we have these two
1: two of the greatest athletes of the last yeah. fifty years represent diametrically opposed models of development. One well known, one unknown. development yes. Story. We're in love with the Tiger model. Yeah. If I polled the audience, yeah. most of them would say the Tiger implicitly is, is the model that leads to greatness. Mm-hmm. You're arguing. No, it's the Roger model. Why, it doesn't, one thing I've never understood is why did we fall in love with the Tiger model
0: and not like the Roger model? Um, um, wait, I thought you made us fall in love with the Tiger model. Don't blame me. <laughs> You're, I, I'm just, I did not write a book about sports. I'm just kidding. That Everyone says I wrote a book I know, I know, no, that's true. That, that, is, that is very true that um, ideas that you started became outrageous in other hands in many cases. Um, that's a nice and way to put it. I remember the Time Magazine article um, that was like unrecognizable about yeah. Your theories, well, it
1: was at that point I was positing that there was another Malcolm Gladwell walking around <laughs> with so. curly hair who had a set of views that I would, that were sort of unknown to me.
0: But but in terms of Tiger, as I think to steal it's dramatic. It's incredibly dramatic. There's video of him on YouTube at age two. It, it makes a ton of intuitive sense. It's very easy for a prescription to tell people. Um, and I think, as you said, we're obsessed with precocity, right? You said these child prodigy videos are human cat videos. Um, and, and I think that's true. And I'm mad I didn't think of that line for my book.
1: <laughs> but is that, an, is that enough,
0: though? Because it's also clear that Tiger
1: pays an extraordinary price for his precocity, in a way that Federer does not. Right. In fact, it's not difficult to reach the conclusion that one of the reasons Tiger had a kind of meltdown for many years is that he really has been a prisoner of golf since he was this high. And one of the reasons Federer seems so well-adjusted is that he, he had a normal
0: childhood. He did, he completely had a normal childhood. His, his, the, the writer who probably knows the family best called his parents Pulley, not, not Pushy, so he, he did have a very normal childhood. Yeah. yeah. So, so even given the fact that the
1: Tiger model is costly, we still embrace it.
0: Yes, because, well, we're obsessed with excellence, and I think, so if the, one of the themes in range, I think, is that there are, um, and maybe this doesn't apply to golf, and we can talk about that, but that there are things that you can do that cause head starts that actually systematically undermine long-term development. But I think that is a deeply counterintuitive mm-hmm. idea. Um, and when push comes to shove, our intuition is that getting ahead is getting ahead, and that, that prodigious performance um, in a child is a trajectory, not just a cross-section, but that's, that's often not the case. But, but it's also, it's just, uh, it's, it's admirable to see someone want to work that hard. Like, I, I respect that. In them, um, but all, and and it's intuitive that that would work. But also, that's you know one of the reasons we do science is because our intuition can't yeah. always figure it out.
1: So let's walk through the reasons why the tiger model doesn't work. And as far as I can tell from reading your book, there's at least at least three, if not more. But. Starting with the explain, walk us through the
0: match argument, which is a really interesting one, which had never occurred to me. The, so, match quality is this term that that economists use to basically describe the degree of fit between um, an individual's abilities, their interests, and the work that they do. It turns out to be incredibly important for motivation. For um, uh, their performance, right, and, and even their apparent grit. So you get good fit and it'll look like grit when someone does something, uh, when, they're, when they're in something that fits correctly. And the problem is in, in sports selection, this dovetails with something you've written about, the earlier it goes, the less likely you, you optimize someone's match quality. So one of the things that happens when you delay matching is you give people a chance to get more signal about what they're good at, and they end up picking better matches for themselves, and not just in sports. So, yeah. so you know, one of the other studies in range looks at timing of specialization in higher education and the question the economist asks is, who wins the trade-off, the early specializers or the late specializers, and what he finds is the early specializers do in fact jump out to an income lead after college, but by year six, the later specializers who have picked a, fast, a better match, have a faster growth rate, fly past them, and the early specializers start quitting in much higher numbers <laughs> because, you know, it's like if we treated those, those decisions the way we treated dating, we would never pressure people to Settle down that quickly before they took some more data about things, and yeah. so.
1: So, so to to pause on this because I think this is a crucial point. Um, the parent who says who observes of their six-year-old that you know Lucy is enormously is really uh, uh, well coordinated and flexible. I want to make her a, a gymnast. Yeah. The mistake they're making is that um, you don't know at six whether Lucy is best is best cut out for gymnastics. And if you wait until 12, gymnastics may be a bad example here, but if you wait longer, you have a better likelihood of figuring out what her skills match
0: up with. Definitely. Six is just too soon. Yes, Gym- gymnastics is, female, women's gymnastics specifically is a weird example because it requires a, a pre-puberty peak. Yeah,
1: Actually, that's a bad, yeah. What's a better example? But because
0: you know, female gymnasts have shrunk from five foot three to four foot nine on average in the last 30 years because yeah. it makes their power to weight ratio better and lower moment of inertia, so that's a whole different advantage. Um, but, but you're absolutely right. So, and, and Tiger Woods, by the way, he said in 2000 his father never asked him to play golf. It was he, him asking his father to play. It was the child's interest that matters. And so I think the idea that he was like father manufactured from the get go, like you shouldn't be worried about missing the next Tiger Woods because if there's that like incredible, incredible sort of outlier display of interest, like that's not something that his father manufactured from the get go. Yeah. So, so I think people are worried about missing that. But really, um, what you should be oriented toward is match quality. And, and there's all sorts of reasons. So you've written about the relative age effect. So I was just looking at a breakdown of the birthdays of soccer players in the U-17, under-17 European Championships. 47% of them were born in January, February, and March, and 6% in the last three months of the year. And that's because as we push selection earlier and earlier, all the coaches are selecting for is the kids that are effectively a year older and they are actually biologically mature, and they're mistaking that for talent, and then they're in the pipeline, you've deselected the other kids, and it's getting more and more exacerbated, where we're picking for things that have nothing to do with the traits you ultimately want, because we're driving selection earlier and earlier. Yeah. So that's one argument that by, and I, I can
1: see actually, it's, sort of, it's kind of fascinating to apply that outside of sports as well. So the equivalent would be to observe of your six-year-old that uh, she has a facility for counting and to put her immediately into a pre-math PhD program—that's—that <laughs> would be—that's that, exactly what yes, what parents yeah, are doing. And, and in fact, right?
0: what they're obs- and counting is a good example because that what these things that parents do are usually based on is the observation of what's called a closed skill, something like counting, or the kid walks early, or something like that. And those kinds of closed skills that aren't these more general pieces of scaffolding that, that are good for long-term development there's a fade-out effect on those kinds of skills, whether they're in sports, whether they're in math, lots of of academic programs that are meant to give kids a boost early on to get them on a different trajectory, And, and it does initially, because the way you can give them the fastest improvement is by teaching them closed skills that have to do with procedures that are used over and over and over, and there's a ubiquitous fade out effect, which is actually just other people catching up, because everyone's gonna learn that skill eventually, and it ceases to become an advantage. And so we make choices based on precocity and these closed skills in many cases that are not really in the long term advantage. Yeah.
1: So second argument is that in order to excel at a complex skill in the long term, you need to build a broad base. Yeah. So walk us through that. Both I'm interested in this one. This one's even more relevant outside the sports realm. Yeah. Yeah. But give us both sports and non-sports in this instance.
0: Yeah, so I wonder if this is maybe we should introduce the, the issue of the kind and wicked learning environment, basically, which are, which are terms taken from a psychologist named Robin Hogarth. And, and one of the reasons, there's a real lack of study in golf, which is interesting, but one of the reasons I can believe that early specialization may in fact work in golf, although the best player in the world right now, Brooks Koepka, picked up golf later because he got in a car accident and his parents didn't want him to do contact sports anymore. But. Um, is a kind learning environment is where all the information is available. Next steps are totally clear. uh, People often wait for each other to take turns. um, Patterns repeat. Feedback is automatic and totally accurate after everything you do. So golf is almost like an industrial task. You try to do known movements over and over and over with as little deviation as possible. That's a kind learning environment. So is, give me other examples of kind learning. Chess is a kind learning environment. So it's it's based, the, the grandmaster's advantage in chess is basically pattern recognition. Um, And that also is the reason why it is so amenable to automation, because computers are even better at pattern recognition. So the the kinder an environment is, you know, golf is like entertainment, and and we still watch people playing chess because it's entertainment, but the more of a kind environment the skill is, the more easy it is to automate, which is why, you know, now that your iPhone app can, like, beat Garry Kasparov. Um, On the wicked end are challenges where... The, the rules may not be clear. People are acting in real time. They're more dynamic. Uh, you may or may not get feedback after everything you do. Next steps aren't always clear. The feedback may be delayed or maybe inaccurate. So Hogarth used this example I love of a famous New York City physician who became renowned because weeks before patients would develop typhoid by palpating their tongue, feeling around their tongue with his hands, he could predict that they would get typhoid right again and again and again. And as one of his colleagues eventually observed, he was a more productive carrier of typhoid than typhoid Mary using just his hands. And so, yeah, that's a really wicked learning environment, because the feedback, <laughs> yeah. wait, that wasn't even another joke. Um, <laughs> the, the, the feedback teaches exactly the wrong lesson. And so he gets famous for this feedback loop that teaches him the wrong lesson. Most environments aren't that wicked either. But the closer you are to the wicked end of the spectrum, the more you have to do what's called transfer, where you take knowledge and skills and have to apply them to situations you have never seen before. Mm-hmm. So this more repetitive using procedures knowledge then can become an impediment because you're stuck doing the same things when you really have to transfer to situations you haven't so seen before. Starting a business would be wicked. Starting a business would be, would be wicked and I think that's one reason why like if, there was some recent research from LinkedIn that showed like people who, who become successful executives, one of the best predictors is the number of job functions they've worked across within an industry. Or again, to go to this obsession with precocity, when Mark Zuckerberg was 22 and he said, "Young people are just smarter, and MIT Northwestern and the Census Bureau just has research out showing that the average age of a founder of a blockbuster startup on the day of founding, not even when it becomes a blockbuster, is about 46. Yeah. Um, but like the Tiger story we just focus on the Zuckerberg story, but actually people have to zigzag usually quite a bit before they find that, that ground, because the goal isn't initially clear like it is in, in kind learning environments. Yeah, yeah. So it's odd that the, uh,
1: the, the kind of myth of precocity and the, uh, the idea that the Tiger model is so important is relevant only in the, the areas that we're least interested in.
0: That's, you, I, Right. I should have talked to you before I wrote some of the lines in the book, yeah. Um, no, that's, that's, yeah, a very clever way to phrase it. And, and that's so one of the things that I was critiquing in Range was, you know, books in, in the, that we've both read sort of in the performance genre have used the Tiger model, is the most popular model from which to extrapolate to everything else in the world. Like, literally, I think talent is overrated. The back cover says Tiger Woods, um, the Polgers, the Chess family, and this is what works for anything that you care about. And yeah. in fact, it's that leap that is a problem it may work in golf, but it's the extrapolation where we've made a mistake. Yeah, yeah.
1: The, um, the, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about this, um, this notion of in sports. Um, so what's a good example
0: of a wicked sport? I, I don't think any sports are that wicked. I think because they're all rule bound. So what Hogarth said is he said, tennis is more wicked than, than golf. Because yeah. tennis ha- is dynamic, you have to, you have to use so-called anticipatory skills where, the sport is actually happening too fast for you to react to. So you need to learn to pick up cues in a player's body and spin of the ball and things like that to, to act faster than you could otherwise. Um, so it's much more dynamic. But it's still, you know, and, and soccer really, one of the reasons why applying like moneyball stuff to soccer has been so difficult because it's so fluid and the game changes so much that analytics hasn't made nearly as big an impact there as like baseball where something happens and it stops and something happens and it stops and so analytics have made a much better um, um, impact, but Hogarth then says what we're really mostly playing in the world, the things we most care about are Martian tennis, where you can see people doing something, but nobody's told you the rules. It's up to you to deduce them, and by the way, they can change at any time, and that's, that's these, these other challenges that we, we mostly yeah. care about.
1: What about? I was thinking that there's a third reason why you would want to take uh, a, uh, a generalist course as opposed to a specialization course. And that is that you, um, it is only through taking a generalist approach that you can have novel skills. Not only, but the chief reason, you'd wanna, like, so I was thinking of this in basketball that, you know, every now and again there's someone like Akeem a- 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 Olajuwon or Steve Nash, these brilliant basketball players who have strong grounding in soccer. Yeah. And that's very rare among basketball players. But we say of those who come to basketball late from soccer that they have certain skills that are unusual. Yeah. Or at least they have developed certain skills much more than their peers right. that come from soccer, and that is what gives them their their uh, their special advantage, their comparative advantage. So it's it's quite conceivable that had he not played soccer, Steve Nash would not have been a superb NBA player because what what sets him apart as an NBA player is the fact he brings an unusual skill set.
0: It just so happens that I was emailing with Steve Nash about this last week. Canadian royalty. Yes. Yes. (laughs) That's hilarious. Um, and there was this HBO Real Sports segment about sport development in Norway because like Norway blew everybody away in these last Winter Olympics. And it's all this unstructured stuff. They're not even allowed to have formal games until you know, competitions until until they're sort of mid or later teen years. Um, and and Steve's a big soccer fan, you know, and, and France, which just won the World Cup, overhauled its development pipeline starting decades ago to incorporate this. So a, a, a French soccer play, young soccer player plays about half as many formal games as an American soccer player of the same age. And, and they have this saying, there's no, so, there's no remote control, meaning the coaches aren't even allowed to talk to them most of the time. They want to do this like free form, unstructured stuff. So I actually think that, so Steve Nash didn't even get a basketball until he was 13, by the way, and I like him as an example because He's, he's relatively normal sized, like he's not that big. So for those, actually, let pause. For those of you who don't know Steve Nash, it occurs to me, I'm so deep inside right, right.
1: basketballness that I forget right. that other people are not. Right. Steve Nash is someone who sort of physically resembles me. Yeah. Um, he, uh, And happens to be one of the 10 greatest point guards of the last. 50 years? Two-time NBA MVP for sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, he's maybe a, one of the yeah. best. I mean, he's a Three. legendary basketball player and he's a he's a skinny guy from Canada. Who'd, I mean, you could just the, the number of parallels right. between him
0: and me are astonishing. Right. This, um, right. <laughs> this Venn diagram is UNST <laughs> <That's> right.
1: <laughs> and he, you know, also charming and all that.
0: <laughs> But um, so, so go back to so you were emailing with students. Oh yeah, and so we watched this Real Sports, and, and he's actually exploring starting an academy um, to incorporate these principles of unstructured play, because I think in some ways multi-sport is actually just a proxy for movement diversity, really. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you go around to you know Brazil, the kids aren't even playing soccer, they're playing futsal, this game that's like small ball stays on the ground, they'll play on a shape this size one day, sand one day, cobblestones the other day. So they're playing futsal, but it's really a different game all the time, it's different involving different anticipatory skills. And, and so he, he's into this, and so he wants to start an academy because he realizes that his imprimatur, you know, Steve Nash's name, will allow parents to say, okay, maybe we will do like what the science says we should do in, instead of going to early specialization. And Judy Murray, Andy and Jamie Murray's mother, has done this same thing in the UK where she basically facilitates unstructured development and people send their kids to her camp. They won't let the kids do this stuff on their own, but if Judy Murray says it's okay, like then it's yeah, okay. It's yeah, it gives them permission
1: but this raises another thing that's wrong with early specialization which again sounds like it's specific to sports but applies and i want to talk about the this notion and you pointed out that when you specialize early and you're doing the same repetitive movements over and over again your risk of injury later in life starts to increase oh yeah so but this is there's a beautiful parallel to this in non-sporting things which is this notion of burnout yeah and i wonder whether that's not a really crucial that somehow there is something about early specialization that leeches the joy out of an intellectual activity
0: and limits it far too early i think that's i think that's probably true for a lot of people but by the way i want to say one interesting thing about the injury issue which is cirque du soleil lots of olympians um, they looking at this kind of they, they have a ton of physiology data decided to have their performers learn the basics of other performers skills not because they were going to perform them but to see if it would make them more creative. And subjectively, they thought it did, but they measure their injury rates next to Canadian gymnastics and drop their injury rates by a third. Mm-hmm. So something about doing that makes people less fragile. And I have theories about what that is, but it doesn't matter, the fact is it works. But, but I think you're absolutely right. So like when I started, I had to write about music and range, of course, because it's probably the, the, the next domain that's most associated with early specialization. And when you look at those studies, the main reason that people, promising musicians quit is they report a mismatch between the instrument they play and the instrument they wanted to play, and if you look at the pattern of their development, they will usually. Um, so the, the ones who come on to become the best typically have a sampling period, just like um, the the athletes. So like even Yo-Yo Ma, who actually you know did focus very early, had a sampling period. He just went through it a heck of a lot quicker than most people yeah. do, um, because he didn't like the first two instruments that he was playing, um, and this. What, what the ones who are going to become exceptional, they early on spread their early practice across a larger number of instruments, whereas what it looks like for the ones who plateau at lower levels and or quit, um, they have this first instrument where they get tons of practice and, and someone kind of tells them, you know, you can't switch now, you have a head start, you'll get behind. So it's, you know, sunk cost fallacy kind of thing and, and they end up quitting. So yeah. like in Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. You know, on the first page, she says, "Here are the secrets to successful children," and assigns one of her children violin, and and presides over five hours a day of practice. And 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 to the author's credit, later in the book, she acknowledges the daughter says, "You picked it, not me," and quits. Right? People, that part of the message didn't get as famous, um, but but it is in the book. (laughs) Five hours. Of violin a day is
1: just the most bananas idea I've ever heard. Not just for the child who has to play five hours, but for the parent who has to listen (laughs) to five hours. No. Why would anyone do that to themselves? I I My parents tried to make me play the violin, by the way. One week. It lasted one my sampling (laughs) period was one week. So that's great. And I walked away. Why why did I quit violin after one week? Because my brother, who's older and musical, I say that in scare quotes. Um, I had to, as a child, listen to him endlessly bang away on the piano, and I was like, it, it clearly is going to take many, many years for him to even be remotely kind of pleasing on this instrument. Why would I put everyone else in our family through the same painful process? That's so magnanimous of you to I know. I to, retreat to my room and close the door. <laughs> anyway, this is not about my family pathologies. This is about something much more important. But I want to talk about this in terms of, let's talk about this in terms of schooling. What this, so if you're, if I make David Epstein czar of American schooling, Mm. let's let's leave sports aside for a while. I would like you to redesign the curriculum of K through 12 to maximize people's um, development as human beings. Actually, not even K through 12, K through the end of college. Tell me what
0: you would do in light of what you've learned from range. Geez, what a question. Um, The first thing I would do is before I would just overhaul the system from the bottom, I, I, th- I would start with things that we actually could do at no cost today, which is, so, so chapter four is called Learning Fast and Slow, um, with apologies to Daniel Kahneman. Um, and it, it details these really well-known findings in cognitive psychology about learning that again are deeply counterintuitive because they show that the quickest way to demonstrate progress actually undermines long-term progress. So the, the, probably the single most surprising study in the book to me, was this one done at the Air Force Academy? I love this one. It's amazing. So, because you could never do this any other place, right? So you have an Air Force Academy that brings in, you know, whatever, 1,000 students every year. They all have to take a sequence of three math courses, Calculus one, Calculus two, And they are randomized to professors for Calculus I, re-randomized for Calculus 2 re-randomized again. And so you have this incredible experimental condition. And, and these researchers who wanted to see the impact of teaching in this incredible natural experiment, and so they followed thousands of students and 100 different professors. And what they found was that the students, so the, the, student, the students' characteristics coming in were evenly spread across classes. The students who overperformed compared to the ability they came in with the most in Calculus One then systematically underperformed in all of the follow on courses. The professor whose students did sixth best in Calculus One out of 100 and got the seventh best ratings from the students, finished dead last in how his students' performance was in their follow-on math courses after that. Mm -hmm. There was almost an inverse relationship between how well students overperformed in Calculus 1 and how much they then underperformed in the follow-on courses, and between how well they rated that first professor. And it turned out what those professors were doing was they were teaching using procedures knowledge. They were teaching a narrow curriculum that worked really well for the Calculus 1 test, but did not set up these broad frameworks that allow you to scaffold later knowledge. And so, again, that's so deeply counterintuitive that you could do something um, that causes this kind of short-term progress. Everyone had to take the same test, of course, and somehow undermines long-term development. And so I think you can can kind of see where I'm getting at this fact that the way we use testing as evaluation can be a real problem if you're incentivizing people um, to impart using procedures knowledge that can make kids do the best on the test but is not the best for their long-term development. So that's a problem. Testing is wonderful, but for learning. So there are three, in that chapter, sort of three strategies. Testing, interleaving, and spacing. Testing is just quiz yourself, right? You want to force someone to generate an answer before they know what they're doing. Because it's the attempt to generate an answer that then primes your brain to remember something when you are told the answer. So you want to test before people are ready. Interleaving means doing tons of different kinds of problems. The way that math study usually works in the US is you do a type of problem, do it, do it, do it, do it, problem A, A, A. B-B-B-B-B-B-C-C-C-C-C-C. And that leads to using procedures knowledge. What you want to do is never show the same exact problem twice. And what that forces the learner to do is to match a strategy to a problem instead of learn how to execute a procedure. That's called interleaving, where you mix up these problems. Third, spacing. You don't want to do, we usually do, you do one thing, You wait, and then you you just move on to something else, whether this is school or professional development. What you really want to do is do something, do some other things, and then come back to that thing. Mm -hmm. And so you have this, you're repeatedly coming back to things. So a famous spacing study, Spanish vocabulary learners, they were taught, one group was taught eight hours on one day, the other group four hours on day one, four hours a month later, all same total training. Eight years later, when they were brought back, Group two, remembered 250% more with no study in the interim, right? Mm-hmm. Same amount of study. So the first thing I would do is incorporate testing, spacing, testing for evaluation, not testing, I mean, sorry, testing not for evaluation, testing for learning before people are ready, spacing and interleaving in everything we do. Because that's no cost stuff that that scaffolds learning in a totally different way, where you learn this, this knowledge, is called making connections knowledge instead of, um, but this, but instead of. Procedures. Underneath all that
1: is this really fundamental insight, which is that the sometimes the very best teachers are those who disadvantage us in the short term. Yeah, yes,
0: and I mean that's one of the themes of the book is that the things that you can do that look the best in the short term, um, in order to be in, in your terms, in order to be the best at X, it seems intuitive that you should just start doing X as soon as possible. But that yeah. turns out not to be the right thing. More, more in a more conceptual level, if I were the school czar, I think there's. There's something I talk about that the, there's a section in the book where I talk about the army and their failure to retain um, uh, their most talented officers. And first they tried to throw money at them and that the people who were gonna stay stayed anyway and the people who were gonna leave left anyway and that was a half billion dollars of taxpayer money. Um, and then they started something called talent-based branching where instead of saying here's your career track up or out, someone goes in and say here's a bunch of career tracks, you can sample a couple, we'll pair you with a coach. And after each one, they'll help you reflect on what you learned about your own abilities, what you learned about your own interests, and you'll keep triangulating until you get this better match. And I think I would take that conceptual approach to kind of everything, where you help people. One of my favorite quotes in the book is from Herminia Ibarra, who studies how people find careers that fit them. She says, you learn, we learn who we are in process, in practice, not in theory. And what she means is, there's this whole industry that tells you you can just introspect and decide who you are, but in fact, the only way we learn about ourselves and our options is by doing stuff and reflecting on it. So I think I would wanna build that kind of talent-based branching where the teacher or coach is someone who helps a person reflect on what they've learned about their own abilities and interests from these multiple experiences.
1: You know what the enemy of what you're describing is? Is uh, self-knowledge. I've always thought that self-knowledge was overrated. Why is it so important to know the kind of person you are? And what you're describing is the benefits of not knowing so people who say, I'm not a math person, I'm, you know, I'm very X or Y, are precisely the people who would, um, who would, who would uh, object or who, would, who right. would have a problem with the kind of course of action you're describing. Right. You're asking people to sample widely yes. outside their areas of specialty, right. or their areas of interest, or their areas of, not interest, their areas of imagined interest and imagined specialty, yeah. right? On the, on the grounds that they don't know that's what right. it is that's, that, will, that they'll either
0: thrive at or what they need to be good. Their insight into themselves is constrained by their roster of previous experiences, period, yeah. um, and, and that's an important thing to know. And not only that, but this, con- this concept I write about the end of history illusion, right, which shows that we, at every time point in life, we realize we've changed a lot in the past. Our preferences, our values, what we think our strengths and weaknesses are, um, the friends we prefer, the things we like to do for fun, And at every time point, we then underestimate how much we will change in the future. We keep saying, like, man, I changed a lot from these experiences there, but now I'm pretty much done. And we say that at every time point. So it it leads to these really weird results, like when people are asked how much they would pay to see their favorite band today, 10 years from now, the average answer is $129. And when they're asked how much they would pay... Wait, that wasn't even a joke. When (laughs) When they're asked how much they would pay today to see their favorite band from 10 years ago, the average answer is $80. Um, and so we really underestimate how much we change. So this idea that we, we come like fully formed with, with insight into ourselves is, is not supported by yeah. any of the work in this. You know what this yes.
1: reminds me of in my, this season of my podcast, I have all these episodes about um, Jesuits. I, the theme is how to think like a Jesuit because I love the way Jesuits think. And the Jesuits had this really lovely notion, and by the way, if there's a Jesuit in the audience and I get this wrong, just raise your hand and correct me. Um, I'm not a Jesuit, that's why I'm like, but uh, they have a notion of what's called disordered attachments. And the idea, this is an idea from St. Ignatius, is that you cannot approach a problem if you're bringing with you attachments that get in the way of seeing, listening clearly, seeing the nature of the, so the guy I was talking to gave me this example of when he was a novice, and he he was supposed to be sent out to do your training, and he said to his senior, he said, "You know, I'll do anything you want. I'll go anywhere to do my training. Just don't send me to a hospital because I just can't stand the sight of blood." And people, and the, and the guy said, "You're going to a hospital." <laughs> and it's exactly your point, though. He was observing that he had a disordered attachment to the idea that he was someone who could deal with, who could not deal with that particular set of problems, and that set of problems were not useful to the direction he wanted to go on. And this, the senior priest understood that. No, that's You're 25 years old. You can't have a self-definition that rules out this massive area of your presumed uh, responsibility, which is people who are suffering, right? Who are physically suffering. I
0: mean, especially at at 25, the the period of fastest personality change over your life is 18 to 28. So so making those decisions for a 25-year-old is is making a decision for someone that you don't really know. Yeah. And for a world that you can't really conceive. Yeah, and I don't think that's a good strategy what? for matchings. Let's play with, let's, let's, do, let's go radical for a moment. What if, for example, would you go
1: for the following idea? What if we, um, if we had students choose their, to, when you, when, at the point in high school when you start choosing your own courses, what if we
0: took that away and we just um, had people, assign people courses randomly? <laughs> I think that would probably be fine as long as we, again, I think we should implement this kind of. Um... But the way, anyway, I love that you, Without even a moment,
1: like, let's just stop. We're in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. We're within walking distance of Dalton. We have just suggested that the premise on which all of this high priced education is
0: based yeah. is just nonsense. Well, I mean, the, the evidence, <laughs> no, but, but the evidence for that is actually pretty clear. That, yeah, no, That, like, I, the, is acquired, that I mean. the school outcomes come from their selection of students and those students, others, background yeah. factors and things like that, yeah. not from the stuff they learned at the school. The equivalent would be a hospital that uh, boasted of its
1: success in curing people and only admitted the healthiest people. Right, right. So they basically just admitted members of the U.S. Olympic team and then turned around and said, oh, my God, look at our, look at the, 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 the health status of our, of our patients. Right, it's extraordinary. Right. They're setting world records, that's how much we cured them. Right, right, things like, yeah, 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 no. It, Wait, so let's, let's, so you're in favor of randomization, and what was
0: your caveat? Um, that I think, especially at those early ages, yeah. you just wanna make sure, anything they do, like when I, when I first started in training to be a scientist, when, when I did my first lab work, I thought, here's where I'm gonna learn that um, this is what I wanna do, for the rest of my life. And I learned that maybe this wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, and I wasn't happy about that, but that was a very important signal to get. But I think you wanna make sure that, that you help them maximize their learning from these experiences. And, and some people do that on their own, so-called self-regulatory learners, and the thing they do the most of is they stop and reflect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I think you wanna help them and make sure that they're getting signal from whatever it is that they're doing. And, and I don't think you would lose much by randomizing anyway, because the fact is, like when Jim Flynn, who I think we, we both know, studied college students both in, in, in the UK and in the US, he found that the skills that they were able to use to get good grades at elite colleges had a, I think it was about a, a .03 correlation with their abilities on a test of critical thinking that really matters in the world. Mm-hmm. So we're clearly imbuing people with skills that are no good for critically analyzing the actual world. So I, so I don't think you stand to lose very much in most cases.
1: What about, this brings up a second notion which is, um, does this argument suggest that you may learn more from situations where you are, relatively speaking, performing badly than situations where you're performing well?
0: Well, so, so the cognitive- is there psych- no relationship? No, I mean, the cognitive psychologist, Nate Cornell, would say if, if you're, um, difficulty is not a sign that you aren't learning, but ease is. And I think that's a, that's a good thing to keep in mind. If something is too easy, then Maybe you like to do it, but that doesn't mean that you're not learning much, right? Like, you can go to the gym and lift the same weights the same number of times every day and you won't slide backward, but you also won't, won't cause adaptation. Yeah. Um, and, and so, no, I think, there's, I think there is something to that.
1: So why, why then do we persist? What is the value of assigning grades to academic performance in high school?
0: Um, I, I, I assume part of the goal is to give people a sense of how they're doing. But if you really wanted to, what self-regulatory learners really need, or the kind of the best learners, is is very fast feedback. So when you actually give them a test and then show them the answers like weeks later, that's not good for learning. You would want to do it like right away, yeah. um, or or work with them right away, not just give them the answer. Um, so, I, but I think it's for because uh, we need a system that like sifts people for colleges, you know, and gives them some ostensibly is to give them some kind of feedback about how they're doing. And how their learning is, but I think, but why can't that feedback be private? Um, I don't know.
1: I mean, I just started playing with. It It strikes me that the more you think about your argument, the more sort of subversive it becomes. Because if you really wanted to redesign an educational system from scratch based on these ideas, you really are sweeping away a whole lot of the kind of rituals
0: that surround formal education. I think there are things that are done well in formal education, too, I should say. By the way, like, so chapter two is about these steadily rising IQs across the world, and, and I think some of that has to do with things that, that are learned in school. In that sense, schools you do really, really good job. you believe that? You think the Flynn
1: effect is, so, so the Flynn effect is this observation that in uh, the developed world, at least, and also in parts of the, yeah. of the non-developed yeah. world, IQs have been rising steadily over the last 100 years? No, yes. 75 yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was like. Didn't Steven Johnson famously argue it was video games?
0: Um, so it, it's, it, it seems to be this, well, it, it's controversial, but it seems to be this more abstract thinking, basically. Because all the gains have been on the most abstract type of tests, like not the stuff that's taught in school. Yeah. So that's an argument that school hasn't helped, but it's it's like things like Raven's Progressive Matrices, where you get these abstract designs and you have to fill in the missing one. So this was supposed to be the test that, like, if Martians landed, it could tell how smart they were. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's the one that has had the most change. And so I don't think it's from things that are explicitly taught in school, but the way that that we've learned to, as Flynn would say, look through scientific spectacles to do classification and abstraction. Um, I don't think that's necessarily taught on purpose, but I do think it is is ingrained in what happens in school and, and I don't want to rag on schools too much because I, I, I point out in the, <laughs> I, I, I point What's out- stopping you? Well, I mean, this it, is the perfect place to rag on school, David. You have- No. But, but, but I, I mean, I, I do point out that everyone thinks that education has gotten worse since their day, right? But yeah. actually, so I, I, I put in range some questions from- you know, like the 60s that sixth graders would face. I thought everyone and, and said now, education's got more expensive since their day. Higher education, I think, right? But, th- so this would be like middle school education basically. And there is without question, middle schoolers have a better grasp of basic concepts than their forebears did, without question. But if you look at the test questions that test the same level in the 60s, it was like, you know, rate times time problem, just apply it. And And now it's like these complex word problems that require multiple steps. And so the challenge has gotten much harder because we're not training people to do repetitive tasks anymore because we're not in that same kind of industrial world. So school is actually doing better, it's just the challenge has outpaced that, I think. Yeah, yeah. In any case, the, the main thrust
1: of your argument is not so much that what schools um, are doing is wrong, but that the, 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 um, the techniques that students and parents use to navigate education are wrong. We're yeah. making different, oh, you know, we're just making the wrong choices within a school yeah. environment. That's really the kind of...
0: Yeah, I mean, w- one program um, that I learned about while I was researching is called Career Academies that targets kids who you know, are, are by traditional measures, not, not really headed to college and gives them some sort of vocational training, basically, or early exposure to, to types of work. And surprisingly, even when they often do not decide to go in to do anything with that career, they still do better overall, like in income-wise, going to do something totally, totally different. And, and I think a little bit of that has to do, again, they're getting more significant sort of signal about themselves and about match quality than you often do in traditional classes. Yeah, yeah. When is, um,
1: speaking of match quality, uh, presumably you could keep searching
0: forever. I mean, I have no idea what I'm gonna do when I grow up. I literally have no idea what I'm gonna do now. Like, no idea. I mean, so when I was a teenager, I thought I was gonna be the Air Force Academy, be a test pilot and be an astronaut, and I've gotten like linearly less long-term goal directed. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether um uh whether your your
1: particular position right now as a best selling author is generalizable to the general public.
0: No, no, I mean but but this was but in the the the, the dark horse project in the book the, the the common trait of people who find fulfillment in their careers is a focus on short-term planning. And and that yeah. resonated with me so much such that I ended up as a subject in the study, which I disclose in the book. Um, what they do is they all came in and would say, well, you know, don't tell people to do what I did, because I came through this weird path where I thought I was going to do one thing, and then I tried, it, I didn't like it, so I zig and zag, and, and they all view themselves as having come out of nowhere, which is why the researchers called it the Dark Horse Project, mm-hmm. and their common trait is this short-term planning, where they don't look around and say, here's who's younger than me and has more than me, they say, here's who I am right now, here are my skills and interests, here are the opportunities in front of me, I'll try this one, here's my hypothesis about what I'll learn, and a year from now, I'll change, because I will have learned something new, and they just do that until they get to a spot where they can kind of uniquely succeed and feel fulfilled. And so I've totally abandoned that, that longer term planning in favor of these short term proactive experiments. And, and why would you have to stop? You can keep doing that your whole yeah. life. Does your, if you were running a company
1: based on these uh, observations, um, would you put that observation into practice? That's to say, right now, companies do a version of this, right? They silo people from the get-go. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. start out in marketing, you stay in marketing, mm-hmm. unless you're one of the very, very few to rise to the very top, and then maybe you get a shot to, are you saying you would do much more uh, cross-specialization with it, even at, for people in their
0: 30s and 40s? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, the, you know, one of my favorite characters in the book kind of got her first like real job when she was fifty-four, basically. But um, and and a lot of the characters did that. Oliver Smithies was another of my favorite characters, right? Who he 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 started in med school and then does chemistry and becomes because he sees a lecture and loves it and becomes a biochemist when that was not a thing. Now that's its own specialty. At the time, it was this weird hybrid. And then in his fifties, he decides to take a sabbatical two floors away. Like every couple of years, he goes a new domain two floors away from his own lab to learn DNA, and then at 60 does his work that wins him the Nobel Prize, and or like Andre Geim, the only, in the last chapter, the only scientist who's won both the Ig Nobel Prize for the silliest research and the Nobel Prize for, um, and he says- Which one did he win first? Ig Nobel. Oh, I see. For levitating frogs with magnets. Um, and Why is that Ig Nobel? That sounds like they, really interesting yeah, to me. They, they, they ask you if you're willing to accept it because of the reputational thing first um, and he was, he was like happy to accept it and he likes to say it's psychologically unsettling to switch gears but he likes to say I, don't, I like to say I don't do research I only do search and I sort of loved that he, he, and, um, you, and we were just talking about Bill Simmons before this and The Ringer who's, who's bounced around and had some huge successes and some failures in some of the work that he's done and one of the things is now these, these people who are becoming famous at the ringer went in with totally different jobs and he allowed them to come on a podcast or to write a story or do this other thing and now they are famous yeah because he allowed this sort of internal mobility in them for to try things like you were, you were just calling someone a genius who was hired as an online editor and now is a famous podcaster right and that's She's not what genius. she was hired for and, and he yeah. allows people to try different things yeah it's one of like the happiest workplaces I've visited Well, it's interesting because what that reminds us
1: is that we have, going back to this question of match, we have way too much confidence in the accuracy of the match mechanisms that are in place. For sure. Like, so you, you know, there is no reason for someone who is 25 or 28 or 30 years old to believe they have, the system has successfully matched them with what they're what they ought to be doing.
0: Yeah, I mean, or you can. You, I mean, you can always be looking to make that match better, right? And again, this is what the army realized, where they said our our traditional tests mm. are not doing a, as good a job as this talent-based branching, basically, yeah. and that you yeah. have to actually do some experimentation. And maybe that's annoying, but it should be viewed as an investment in long-term development.
1: Yeah, we, we have questions, I, I, okay. I, we're, and I've been remiss in not looking at them. Um, uh, Oh here's a good one that points out that there's a difference between the u s and, uh, and the English educational systems, and um, to our credit, we generalize uh, longer and yeah the, the Brits specialize earlier yes uh, so it, they must you, 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 your, your argument
0: would suggest they're paying a price for that correct in fact, the economist who, who studied that was got interested in it because he was going to go into the British school system at the last minute, decided he wasn't sure what he was going to do, and and decided to come into the US school system instead, and decided that got him interested in studying specialization timing. So he looked at, for example, the school systems in England and Scotland, which are very similar, except for specialization timing, where Scotland allows some more sampling, in England, you know, mid-teen years, you already have to be, like, applying to programs in college. And he said, who wins this trade-off, the earlier or the late specializers? And what he found is it's usually the late specializers that you know, there's a million ways to yeah. to get to performance, but that the the late specializers have higher growth rates because they match better and they, and they end up quitting less because they match better.
1: Do you think that that is, that is more of an issue with people of high ability? That is to say, do people of high ability require longer to find their match? Yeah,
0: you know, I, I don't know. I think, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I think you could make the argument that they have more options to choose from. So for example, like, if you look at something like the, the Study of Mathematically Precocious Youth, which has these five cohorts that it started tracking from age 12, um, and so some of these people are middle-aged now. The, it takes these kids who have scored 800 on the SAT when they're 12 on the SAT math, and, and the girls who score 800 tend to also score like super high on the verbal. If you score high on one, you tend to score high on the other, but a lot of the girls who have scored 800 on math score very high on verbal, and they tend to have this wider variety of careers, whereas you know, if some of the boys are, have this high ability tilt, then they'll go toward that tilt, um, but the people who are more even tend to have these more options, so they spread across this larger number yeah. of careers. Well, there's a
1: lovely, if I'm remembering this, this research correctly, they make this lovely observation that boys define what they like as what they're good at, and girls don't. They separate those two hmm. traits, and this is why they were trying to understand why there was so much, there were all these brilliant, w- w- girls who were brilliant in science and math, who were leaving science and math. and they. They thought they had scrubbed out all the bias and scrubbed out all the, and, uh, and they were still puzzled by this. And what they realized in the end was, it was this simple, this difference in definition. Of, it's, a, it's a matching def- definition. Hmm, Boys matched things they were good at, thinking that that would, that correlated with what they would like. And girls never made that decision. And th- in many ways, the, the girl position is superior to the boy position, don't you think? Typical. Yeah. <laughs> Um, hold on. How does being a generalist protect one against AI?
0: Yeah, so that, that's kind of like the topic of the first chapter in some ways. So um, I, I, I kind of, I think it's, and I didn't make this up, an AI researcher gave me this this idea to think about AI on a spectrum mm-hmm. from from chess, where it's based on, there's a huge database of previous knowledge. There are you know, very constrained rules, it's not changing, um, and so Computers have made totally explosive exponential progress, done. Um, to self-driving cars, where we've made huge progress. And very constrained rules, but there are sometimes unfamiliar situations. And it turns out we were not as close, right? Like like Elon Musk keeps pushing it out two years, and two years and two yeah. years. And we're gonna have all the way to something like scientific research or cancer research where IBM's Watson has been such a big flop that some of the AI researchers I talked to were worried that it would damage the reputation of AI in healthcare. Um, and as one of the oncologists I quoted said, the reason Watson did well on Jeopardy and, and not in cancer research is because we know the answers to Jeopardy. Um, and so I think in those, those challenges that are more repetitive, yeah. um, those are much more amenable to automation. Or if you look at things like James Besson's work, a good example is the ATM. When that came in, it was supposed to obviate. Bank tellers, and in fact, we it, it caused more bank tellers because it made every branch cheaper, and so banks could open more branches, and they could hire more tellers overall. But it totally changed the job from someone who had these very specific procedural skills that had to do with transactions to someone who has this much more amorphous human behavior, marketing, customer service um, kind of orientation to these much more sort of softer skills. And and even even where AI is um, really good, like in chess, I mean, it was. Gary Kasparov, who recognized when he played Deep Blue, Morovic's paradox: this idea that humans and computers have opposite strengths and weaknesses. And he realized the computer was far superior at tactics, which is patterns. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's you know the, that's most of chess and grandmasters' pattern study is their advantage. But humans are good at strategy, this bigger picture planning of how to manage the little battles to win the war. And so some of his efforts led to this freestyle chess tournament where humans could play with computers or whatever they wanted. And the the a couple of amateur humans with normal laptops beat the best humans, they beat the best computers, and they beat the best grandmasters with the best computers, these so-called centaur teams. Mm. These were people who were moderate amateur chess players who knew something about computer search, who could handle a lot of flowing information. So suddenly, overnight, the stuff that Kasparov has spent his life learning is outsourced to the computer, and he's no longer the best, where when the, game, when the humans are doing the thing that humans are uniquely good at. Yeah, by the way, parenthetically, I've never understood
1: why people got so worked up about the fact that a computer could beat a human in chess. It's like saying, it's like getting worked up about the fact that a car can beat a human in a race. <laughs> well, it's like, yeah, it's a car. I mean, <laughs> why we have races because we race people who are like ourselves, right? right? right. You don't race a car normally because it's in a different class. It has an engine, uses gasoline. Sleep for yourself. So, <laughs> and then in chess they're like, they import uh, not just a, di- a different species, but an actual like, a a machine, and they're yeah. like, "Whoa, the machine can beat me!"
0: Well, I mean, it's just crazy. It was like, IBM marketing. You know? it, was like, they, they, it was actually.
1: I think yeah. I, this was an IBM. Um, the uh, we're almost out of time, but we have about a few more questions, a few more minutes. Um, what has been uh, your book has been out for um, how many days? Two. Two. <laughs> but it. I guess if you count today, three? You're too modest to say this. It's everywhere, and having this kind of um, sensational effect. And when you and I, you and I did a, David and I did a similar kind of thing back in? March. March. Sports-centric, almost sports. And I have to say, as you were describing this idea to a room full of, it was at this sports nerd conference called Sloan, and there was like 2,000 nerds. (laughs) And they. (laughs) We're so riveted. You could have heard a pin drop as you were explaining this. There is something about this idea that seems to grab people by the lapels. Why? Why do you think everyone is so kind of powerfully
0: attracted to this argument? I think. I think. Well, I think there have been very strong arguments that people perceive going in the other direction. For one, Um, why are you looking at me? (laughs) No reason. Who are you looking at, Uh, David? (laughs) I don't see anyone behind me? <laughs> um, but I think this is a topic, how broad or how specialized to be, that is um, important to everyone, whether they discuss it explicitly or implicitly. Um, that that the signal is very strongly on one side to only do one, and that we talk about all the time, but that we talk about purely with intuition. And so I think my goal was to not to be the final word on this, because I don't even know ultimately how you could ever have the final word on this but to look and see what research was out there and bring to those conversations some concrete information that I hope could make those discussions much more productive and interesting for people. So, so I hope it's that this important discussion that's only been grounded in intuition maybe will go a little bit of a, of a different place now. And that plus, so much of it was deeply counterintuitive for me. Again, this idea that you can do things in the short term that undermine your development in the long term. And so I, so I think, you know, um, apparently counterintuitiveness sometimes uh, works in writing. Yes, it does. It does. Thank, David. Thank you very much, David. Will be by the way before you.
1: Don't clap yet. David, you will be signing books. Where downstairs? I'm not sure. Somewhere, somewhere in this area, David will be signing your books. I encourage you all to read this book. I. I genuinely think it is um, an eye-opening, and much needed, um, and beautifully written um,
0: book, and you're to be congratulated. And, and, and you know, I, I want to thank you for your support of it, because like I said, this has been like a model, sort of, intellectual relationship for me. You're making me sound like I'm, an old guy, like this is Karate Kid, <laughs> No, <I'm>, and you're <laughs>
1: I take it all back. <laughs> take it all back. All right, thank you no. very much, David. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92Yondemand.org.